Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. Hey there, Tony here. If you've been enjoying One Step Beyond, and especially if you enjoy the fact that we don't have annoying ads for items you have no need for, then please consider dropping something into our tip jar. Think of the show like a busker with their hat or guitar case out on the street. If you like what you hear, you throw something in there, you go about your day, and the busker feels that much happier going about theirs. Just look for the support this show link on whatever app you're using to listen to this podcast or head on over to supporter.acast.com forward slash one step beyond. And now on with the show. Hey you! Welcome to episode 23 of One Step Beyond with me, your host Tony Fletcher. It's March already, but it's still winter where I live, but it thinks it might be spring, but it can't make up its mind. So if it's not sunny, it's snowing. And if it's not snowing, it's raining hard. And if it's not raining hard, it's freezing cold. And just the other night, to add to the freezing cold, there was a howling wind, all of which, when combined, renders outdoor conditions somewhere between unpredictable and untenable. But I'm outdoors anyway. I've been working very hard, on the clock for something, which is rare for me. And I have today, Wednesday, March 3rd, free. It's meant to be podcast edit day, but the sun is out. The temperatures are above freezing, just about. And I have decided to kill two proverbial birds with one stone by recording my voiceovers while hiking Blackhead Mountain in the Catskills, here in New York. Blackhead is one of the four winter peaks you have to climb, in addition to the 35, all above 3,500 feet that you can climb in any season. Actually, now it's 33, listen to episode 21 for clarification, if you want your Catskill 3,500 club badge. So, sure, if the weather had been more accommodating the last few days, I might have gone skiing today instead. Probably at Gore Mountain, which I visited twice this winter with my older snowboarding son. I had a blast both times. But hey, today not only kills those two birds, and just to emphasise, no animals are ever consciously harmed in the making of this show, but it also combines these two activities, hiking and skiing. And in the tradition of this show being about personal stories of everyday people stepping outside their comfort zones, It also tackles a subject that affects a significant part of the population. Divorce. 39% of American marriages currently end in divorce. A sobering statistic that's enough to drive someone to a double IPA. My guest is Julie McGuire, who became an avid backcountry skier and hiker as a way of climbing out of her own divorce depression, and who is also, coincidentally or not, an expert on double IPAs. I'm really excited about this episode because I saw winter passing us by here in New York. Well, actually, it's been a full frontal assault this time around. But I kept thinking of how I could do an episode on skiing. And yet, after my accident last year on Gore, I wasn't about to start recording myself on a downhill run. And I'm also highly conscious that skiing has a high financial entry point, and it's therefore not for everyone. I fell in love with skiing when I was about 19 or 20, with three consecutive winter trips to continental Europe from the UK. The first two were budget, which was okay, but the last one broke my bank, and it's proof of why, seriously, young people should not have credit cards. 
Only when the family I started a decade or more later got a foothold in the Catskill Mountains did I pick it back up properly again. And I fell promptly back in love, especially with the ability, or rather the option I should say, to ski within 30 minutes of what was then a weekend home. There was definitely that cost factor, all the more so once the family got involved, and it did mean a conscious decision each year that lift tickets or and season passes and new equipment or upgrades would be part of any annual vacation budget that ever existed. As my kids have grown, I've eased off the local ski mountains with a tinge of regret. While I do enjoy going on my own, that's only when I can also go with people I know and love, especially my older snowboarding son, a grown man who's about to move back to Vermont after an enforced time at home due to pandemic issues. Getting out and about and remote on those ski mountains has actually been one of the high points of this winter for us. The great thing about backcountry skiing, then, is that it eliminates the cost of lift tickets entirely, which is not insignificant. But if the uh, backcountry aspect of this episode still doesn't twist your melon, bonus points if you can identify that musical reference, then the hiking aspect hopefully will do. Because hiking is almost always free. And whether you set your sights on collecting a local set, like for us here, the 3500 Club, and earning some kind of badge you may never wear, much like the marathon medals I recently donated to charity, or whether you just want to get out and about, Julie's story will hopefully be inspirational. And I want to stress that while we talk about the Catskills a lot on this show, that's only because it's where I live. When I started this podcast, I'd seriously hoped to be travelling more by now. Yeah, I know, I was naive. And bringing you episodes from those travels, as I did with the initial Kilimanjaro documentary. That not being feasible within my own living setup right now, I just want to encourage you to substitute any outdoors area of your own for the Catskills. And for fellow Brits, who make up the second biggest audience for this show, in a nation like the UK where there's almost no downhill skiing resort culture, there are still hills, mountains, peaks and snow. So this applies to you too. The conversation I had with Julie was conducted on Zoom. It ran long and it also got technical. Now, I've eliminated much of that technicality and some of the desk slapping sounds for length and clarity. But for those of you interested in backcountry, Julie is such an expert, such a great guide, that for the first time, I'm going to make the full video Zoom interview available on YouTube. Just search for One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher on YouTube. Plus, I'll put the link in the show notes. And if you do get to go to the YouTube link, you'll see Julie wearing her Queen of the Catskills shirt. And so, from me on Blackhead Mountain, to you, wherever you may be, lace up your shoes or strap on your boots, or if you're listening in summer or in the Southern Hemisphere right now, Kick off those open toe sandals, go barefoot, and join me as we go. One step beyond. Julie, I'd like to welcome you to One Step Beyond. And can you tell me where you're speaking to me from? Uh, um, so right now I'm in the Catskills in uh, upstate New York. It's uh, maybe like 30 minutes south of Albany just to give people an idea of where that is. You have been recently granted an honor that in some ways is really, really common because you're not by any means the first to get the honor, but in other ways, it's very un- uncommon uh, because of the number. What, what was, what's the honor that you recently got? So I recently became a member of the Catskill 3500 Club, which is a hiking club here in the Catskills. And in order to gain membership, at least for your um, initial patch, you have to hike all 35 of the high peaks that they have on a list. And then you repeat four of those in the winter. 
um, like for specific ones. So I, I recently was, uh, you know, became a member of the club and uh, I became number 3,500. Was that entirely coincidence that you were number 3,500? Yes. Like it was one of the millions of like synchronicities that have happened kind of like on, on that journey. I was, it was, and they made, they made it a point to stress that, that, you know, this was just based on like when they received my tally sheet and everything. Um, Cause I know that like, I would post like trail conditions and things like that. And, and also a little bit about um, like, they, they knew that kind of like, this was part of, me getting over my divorce, something that I was doing like a project. So um, they made it a point to let everyone know that this was just a coincidence and there wasn't any favoritism or anything like that. Right. Well, we're going to talk about your circumstances more in a, in a moment. They, they publish excerpts from an essay that you've written that I guess is going to be in a future edition of their newsletter. It's a very, uh, a, it's very well written, which might be a good point for me to ask, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a high school English teacher. <laughs> so I teach in a school in the South Bronx. But uh, this year I was granted uh, medical accommodations to work remotely. So I've been living up in the Catskills pretty much full time uh, and really taking advantage of being up here in the mountains, like doing stuff in the mountains every day. I think if you live in the mountains, you'd be a fool not to take advantage of the mountains. But that might ex- that might possibly explain why your essay is uh, is is as well written as it is. If you are an English teacher, you know, you post these very eloquent accounts of pretty much every. I mean, it's almost like you have a public diary on Facebook. You're 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 just sharing your skiing and your hiking. And when you shared your 39th climb, you didn't just hike up Panther Mountain in winter. Uh, you uh, hiked up it on skis and then skied mm-hmm. down it. And there was this, um, there's this amazing picture of you with your skis over the, it looks like they're over the edge of Giant Ledge. And yes. that, that really, really got to me. And then by coincidence, kind of a few days later, I was climbing Halcott, which is one of the bushwhacks, and recording myself uh, a little episode. And I saw somebody had skied down and, and I found myself talking about you and saying, well, maybe I'll get this person on the show. And then straight after that, the 3500 Club put out their announcements about you and your story just seemed like a story that took in two of the things I really did want to cover on this show. One of them is about hiking with a goal um, and the other is about backcountry skiing. But as much as anything, it's about taking on uh, these endeavors when you have um, a personal upheaval in your life. So give me your backstory on how you said about this um, and you know what, ins- what inspired you to these peaks and maybe to the backcountry skiing before, whichever came first? Uh, so on April 28th, uh, 2018, <laughs> I'll always remember that day. So I, I come home from work and uh, my wife was sitting on the corner of the bed. And uh, I mean, she's acting kind of weird, but I was getting ready to go upstate, like which we did every weekend. And uh, she just said to me, um, I can't do this. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't do this? And, and I kind of knew what she meant. <laughs> uh, and instead of clarifying, she just said it kind of like louder, and a little bit angrier. She's like, I can't do this. So, so we had like a, an embryo transfer in, in two days. So we had been trying to 
get pregnant for a year and a half. I, I was the one that was trying. I had done IVF and stuff. And then it wasn't working out for me. So I kind of passed the baton on to her. So I knew she meant that. But I, I also knew in kind of like the way she said it and the way she was acting that this wasn't just the embryo transfer she was talking about. This was she does not want to be married anymore. And um, I was really like left like completely devastated. I mean, I, I felt like a complete failure. Um, I felt like totally unlovable. Like how awful must I be that someone would literally wake up one morning and just kind of like blow up their life, <laughs> not even want to try and save the marriage. I really just kind of like lost the will like to live like in the weeks like following that like I remember I would just try and like sleep all the time like I would take like NyQuil and stuff just repeatedly just to stay unconscious because I could not uh stand the psychic pain so, so, just, so I just want to check I heard you correctly you said you lost the will to live yeah <laughs> yeah I mean I I really I was not in a good place and I was like scared for myself I mean I totally was considering suicide and, and things like that. Um, you know, it, it was really, really, really bad. But uh, I actually did find the, I, I did push myself to go skiing because my ski season ends like in June, on June 1st, because I get my spring pass to Killington. I skied with a friend there. And, and um, I was during, you know, one of the moments that I allowed myself to stay awake, I was on the internet. And I saw this ad um, from Powder Quest uh, for a women's backcountry ski camp in Chile that August. And I had zero desire to go, right? Like I just, I didn't want to do anything, <laughs> like not even skiing. So that, that says a lot. Um, I had always seen backcountry skiing as like the next evolution in my skiing. Uh, but my ex-wife wanted to stay on the resort. So I kind of stayed on the resort with the intention of kind of like going back to it someday. So I was like, oh, this is kind of like too much of a coincidence. So I booked the trip and uh, I go in August. I have a great time. Um, it's an amazing, supportive kind of like it's all women. It's great. And uh, I got the backcountry bug. I want to ask you about that, about the, the, to define the backcountry bug. But I, I think I want to acknowledge first I I think you know it's, I think it's brave of you to admit to the 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 dark hole that, that you found yourself in but the reality is a lot of people get divorced. Um I'm divorced. Um some people see it coming, some people don't see it coming, but I sometimes think that so many people do get divorced that everybody just assumes it's normal and we're all going to get through it. But this is a challenge many of us go through that we don't always get to own up about and talk about how painful it has been and how it can put us in a dark place. It is. And it it takes like a long time to really kind of like um, heal from that. Even if you're over your ex, healing from the experience is, is like a totally different thing, you know? Um, so... Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, I don't know anyone, even in, in people that I know that, you know, they have this like, yeah, we should just go our separate ways. It's just not working out. And it's this mutual agreement. It's always still like a devastating uh, process. And I don't think people realize just maybe like how long it takes, like especially that year afterwards, it was like someone, you know, died, like 
every little thing was a big deal. Like everything for me was a first. First time I went hiking with my dog by myself or something like that. Everything. But then having said having said that, the the fates kind of spoke to you and maybe your computer knew that you were a skier and it sent you this ad because you know, we always wonder sometimes how does how does how does my computer know that I just made that for dinner last night? And it it sent you this ad <laughs> and you went to Chile and you got what you called the backcountry bug. So can you describe the backcountry bug? What is backcountry and why is it so thrilling? Okay, so um, with backcountry, you're essentially climbing what you ski and you're off the resort. So you have special bindings um, where like your heel will release so that you can walk on them like cross country skis. And you put this thing on the bottom of your skis, they're called skins. Uh, they're like uh, this uh, like nylon mohair kind of like combination. And uh, they prevent you kind of from like going backwards when you're going uphill. Like a lot of times like you're, I mean, you can bushwhack up a mountain. You can take like, you know, hiking trails and ski down those. Then when you want to climb like bigger mountains, there are more mountaineering skills that are required. So you're off the resort and, you know, you're finding spots and locations that you think might be fun to ski. Where we are right now this year in the Catskills, there is more backcountry skiing going on than ever. And I have seen people now, you know, skiing and I'm reading about people skiing. So um, is this a, just is this a sport that's taking off or is it due to changing circumstances such as, you know, the P word that's gone on this last year? Um, COVID has definitely um, increased the interest in backcountry skiing and there's definitely uh, more traffic out there than than there used to be. I think because now a lot of the resorts had these reservation systems, people were really kind of like nervous about like, you know, being able to get reservations and use their days. And I think a lot of people were just kind of like threw their hands up and were like, oh, screw it. I don't need the resort. I'm going to go into the backcountry. Um, and so there's been a huge surge in backcountry skiing. Also, there was a huge surge in hiking, you know, this spring and summer. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of the hiking trails and like watering holes and stuff were really trash, like more so than ever before. People, masks, garbage, like it became a lot of problems in a lot of these local towns. Because, uh, yeah, it's great you want to come up here, but, you know, you also have to respect the environment, right? Because people don't go into the woods to see signs of human beings. <laughs> people go into the woods to escape signs of human beings. And I think you need to keep that in mind, uh, like when you're out there. I mean, it was kind of weird. Some of this seems just like common sense, like etiquette, like don't, you know, use your iPhone speaker and put in earbuds if you feel the need to listen to music and don't throw things on the ground and don't carve things in trees and, and, and such. But uh, for some reason, people like need to be educated about that. So don't do any of those things that I just said. Um, and everyone will get along. <laughs> I know it's been really, really, really disappointing. And it's not limited to here because in that brief window of last summer, when we were able to take uh, some some kinds of vacations, I went up to New Hampshire and they had exactly the same problems. And in fact, they had a sign up saying people were, were, were defecating by the streams. And, and 
Yeah, and by the way, that that sign was in the town, a town called Woodstock, by coincidence. But but it was like that that was down by a stream in the town. I know exactly what you're talking about. It, it it's a it it is a, a a real downside of the upside that is people have used the pandemics used the pandemic to stay closer to home, and you know got out into the Catskills. Unfortunately, it is a really important part of any discussions we have that people have to respect nature if they're going to come out of it. And I think then it also causes a backlash, right? You know, people that have, you know, been in the mountains and, and traveling in the mountains prior to COVID. And then you, you kind of like in, in like some of these hiking and backcountry groups, you know, you get these people that kind of now want to be gatekeepers and keep people out. And I don't believe in, in that either. They're, the mountains should be accessible to anybody that respects them. Uh, that's also kind of like why I've, in terms of backcountry skiing, like I've, I've really been trying to kind of like uh, give people the resources and tools that they need, you know, to like get out there. As a female backcountry skier, I'm often, a lot of times the lone woman is <laughs> like a group of men. Men, the trend, and it's not all men, but the trend is that men kind of like brag and overstate their abilities. And the trend, at least that I've experienced, is that a lot of women kind of understate them and then you always have this kind of like feeling like, oh, do I belong? Uh, so I think women are more easily intimidated. I think people of color are, are intimidated and there's a sense of like, I don't belong. I, I think you've given us there an ideal segue to go back into your personal story because you um, had your own reason to get out into the mountains and get away from resorts. Tell, tell me how this, tell, tell all of us how this further helped you get out of that evident hole that you were in. I mean, was it instant? It was as straightforward as, oh, I've got the backcountry bug. I'm, I'm recovered from my divorce. You know, it was funny. I don't, I had no idea what was driving me to constantly like skin up mountains after that. Like I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning on weekends just to skin up the resort, like at Hunter Mountain, just to stay in practice, right? You know, with my skinning and, and you know, to keep learning and stuff like that. Cause I wasn't really comfortable like going into the Catskills backcountry or anything yet. Like my ex, my ex covered the maps. Like she was good at, she was the navigator. I was just like, whatever, I don't have a head for that. Just point me in the direction to go. Are we going this way? Okay, good. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't confident about that yet. And there was just something about it. I was like, it's cold, it's windy, it's dark. Why am I getting up to do this? I already get up at 5.30 every day during the week. This makes no sense. Maybe I had so much kind of like uh, psychological and emotional pain that I wasn't noticing the physical pain or maybe the physical pain was helping to uh, mitigate or focus less on my psychological pain, I don't know. Um, but it was pain involved physically and emotionally. And maybe there was something cathartic about that, where like, you're thinking about your divorce, you're thinking about things that went wrong, and you're climbing. And with the intensity that you're feeling, like these, you know, painful emotions, you're also kind of like, exerting yourself physically in, in, in an equal amount. Uh, so maybe that was it. But I mean, I would listen to audiobooks and stuff and I would just climb and climb and climb. And something just like kept pushing me to climb mountains. It's really fascinating because in your own way, you're describing 
And what my last guest, who's in many ways just so so completely different, um, the guy who, you know, for whatever reasons, joined the army in Britain, went off to Afghanistan in the first month, gets his legs blown off, and has subsequently climbed Kilimanjaro, you know, as as, as the first um, double amputee above the knee amputee, and he's he's got a hobby of climbing mountains. He says it's painful, it's horrible when he's on them. He just wants to get off them. He has, you know, <laughs> and then he. <laughs> And then he gets to the top and it's worth all of that pain. Well, I think whenever we have some sort of a passion or a hobby, we're kind of in some ways uh, experiencing life on this micro scale, but in a way that we can kind of control, right? So when I'm in the mountains and I'm skiing and I'm learning new skills, I can deal with setbacks then and setbacks motivate me more. You know, um, I wish I could kind of like carry that over more into the macrocosm of life. But I think that when you have a hobby or a passion and you're consistently practicing that on the micro level, that it will, without you realizing it, start to translate into uh, dealing with kind of like bigger situations that life throws at you. But you know, with life, you never know, all right, well, I keep struggling and struggling and struggling. When is the struggle going to end? And when is that going to pay off? And, and I think that uncertainty is, is what makes it so much harder to kind of like deal with like these big things in life versus, you know, your hobby or your passion that that's kind of like on that micro scale. So did you find that hiking was um, hiking uphill and you're doing the backcountry skiing? And was that a chance to put your divorce out of your mind or would it follow you up there? Oh, no, that's all I did was think about that. What can I learn from this? What went wrong? What can I do with this? I've always had skiing, like skiing is, is something that like, you know, I, I always do. And I have this thing for myself. And I think uh, one of the things that I've learned is that it, it really is important to invest in some sort of passion, interest, hobby, something. Um, not necessarily to help you like, even forget about things, but it gives you a starting point whenever you need to rebuild yourself. And, you know, you're gonna have some sort of ego death at some point in life, right? And you're gonna have it many, many, many times. And, uh, you know, you're gonna have that ego death, you're going to suffer, but your hobby or your passion or whatever is that starting point in, um, in rebuilding yourself and transforming yourself, right? And resurrecting yourself. And maybe mountains were a good metaphor because when I was younger, I thought that life kind of moved on this kind of, you know, there'd be like a nice smooth ascent on a graph of like income and happiness, et cetera. I mean, uh, it didn't take too long. I think by the end of my teens, I realized that no, no, life is a series of rolling hills and, and you know, yeah. there are all these troughs in between your peaks. And if, if that, if that graph is meant to eventually go upwards, well, hopefully at the end of your life, the graph is considerably higher than when you started your life, but it's not going to be a straight line there's just no way it's going to be a straight line so for you um it's it's it, it, i guess it's a chance to escape outdoors but but you can't escape from from the pains of certain personal things and you just have to no. embrace them i guess there are two things that that i need to do to get over something one you need to rebuild yourself right so that's why i have like skiing and stuff and then two i need to apply what i've learned and pay it forward in some way or, or utilize it and i think that's like my next kind of like step is I've been trying to figure out how to kind of like pay this forward. I think that's why I've also gotten interested in kind of like uh, helping 
get others out there like the backcountry or hiking or in the mountains because like that's my way of like you know what I went through this this helped me this might help you let me tell you what you need to know great so for anyone who is looking to start out on that and somebody who maybe has uh um, the basics of skiing, or maybe they don't have the basics of skiing. How can they learn backcountry skiing? So assuming that you have the touring gear, though, you can still get out into the backcountry without ski touring gear. You can always just invest in snowshoes and carry your skis on your backpack with like your boots in the, in the bindings. So you don't need to buy the ski touring gear. And I, in fact, I recommend even maybe starting that way because then you know if you like it or not. Do you like that trudge uphill? Because you better love the trudge uphill <laughs> and be able to find some like uh, joy in that or reward in that. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to be for you. So here I am trudging uphill. No skis on my back though. Climbing the steep, steep part of the Blackhead Mountain. And this is the point in the interview where we started getting just a little bit technical. Julie references the AIARE, the American Institute of Avalanche Research and Education, and the couple of courses that they offer. Everyone will teach you how to plan a backcountry ski tour. They're not going to teach you how to use your equipment, though. It's kind of like assume that you already know that. Even though uh, the, the backcountry ski camp said you don't need any experience necessary, like that's not how I roll. So I, I was like, okay, I've got, I bought all my equipment and um, I like, I went on, watched YouTube videos and, and stuff like that. And actually by the time I got there, it was, I was able to, I was like, all right, I understand how my bindings work and how to get them into uphill and downhill mode. I know how to put my skins on the bottom. Uh, I cut them using a YouTube video. And uh, I mean, I would just walk uphill. In terms of finding terrain, that's really where what people want to know, right? They're like, whatever, I'll figure out my equipment. Tell me how to find uh, backcountry zones. So um, my hiking was really kind of like a way of finding territory to backcountry ski. And here's where we get to talking about the apps you can take on the mountain with you. There are plenty to choose from. Your Airy One courses usually say, like, use CalTopo. I love FatMap. Julie really does love FatMap. Check the YouTube channel again if you want to get more information about it. We're really here to talk about the fact that you can take apps and that you should rely on your phone. Your phone is an amazing GPS device. And regardless of whether or not you have Wi-Fi or a signal, you are, it will track where you are. So you can download the map ahead of time. It shows you where you are all the time as this red dot. So you always know where you are. And so you can um, put in waypoints. So like the instant I go into a parking spot, I zoom in as much as I can. I put in a pin by pressing down on my phone. I put parking. Now I always know where my car is parked. Even if I get like way lost, I can head towards my car. Now, if you listen to episode 15 of One Step Beyond, you'll know that we did an episode about navigation in the mountains. My host for that episode, because we actually did it in the field, so to speak, on a bushwhack hike, was Ken Posner, an expert in minimal navigation. Someone who likes to leave pretty much all devices and navigational tools either behind or in his bag to use as a last resort and rely instead on natural navigational techniques. This is certainly a wonderful tool to have in your toolbox, as they like to say. But as Julie points out, it is a source of conflict between the minimal hikers and those who genuinely believe that you want to have your phone with you at all times. So you should always have a backup mode. 
right? Um, but a lot of hikers are like map and compass, only way, no other way to navigate in the backcountry. Using technology is stupid. Like they're practically like Luddites about it. Unfortunately, I mean, that's not entirely accurate. Your compass can fail. Even if you look on the um, uh, New York, uh, the NYNJTC, like those maps, they'll even say something, um, and I've looked at it, about how like there's a lot of iron in the rocks in the Catskills that throw off your compass bearings. And Julie says that in fact her own compass did fail on her when she did a hike up Panther Mountain over the summer, searching for plane crashes. Apparently there's lots of them in the Catskills. It was important for her to be able to revert to her phone. In a lot of hiking groups, I was just looking at one today where people were like, oh, these mountains were better when people just used a map and compass. It kept a lot of the people away. Now everyone's there with their GPS devices and the mountains are getting crowded. And There's a little, little bit of nimbyism there. And uh, <laughs> there's also a great saying at Burning Man, which is when anybody's new to Burning Man, you just greet them and you go, oh, welcome to Burning Man. It was better last year. And, 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 and it's all out in the open. It's a bit of a joke and it's to make them feel like they're a little late to the party. I think, you know, right, right. the fact is the world changes. People discover things. We just we have to adapt. And then this conversation is, is much more about how we adapt and, and treat nature with respect and, and, and deal with the fact that the, if our mountains are more popular, I'm sure it's the same in all over America right now, probably all over the it world. Is. A lot of people getting out in their backyard, which is which is fantastic. And, they, and you know, hopefully less of a carbon footprint as a as a result uh, to me. Uh, so the hike, the hiking up with your skis, like you're saying, you can put them on your back um, or you can have the bindings that, uh, that you know, let your heel out. Does that therefore mean that when you come down? you are going to be coming down like a, uh, uh, a teleskier with your heels out. But, oh, no, no, because... I can put it into downhill mode. Right. And there are, there are, there are multiple options, like the guy I saw uh, on Overlook just 10 days ago who was on a split board, which is a snowboard that literally kind of splits in half, and that way he yeah. could hike, hike up on his board. But to me, it seems like the harder part is figuring out your downhill because, of course, the beauty, the beauty of a resort – is they carve out the hill, the, you know, they, they not only carve out the runs for you, but they groom them or they don't groom them, but they let you know what's on them. And not for nothing, they can make snow when there's not enough snow. So how do you choose how to come down one of these backcountry mountains? The biggest struggle in the Catskills and uh, a lot of places in the Northeast is the downhill. The uphill is the easy part. It's always the downhill that I dread. So with few exceptions, <laughs> Uh, the downhill isn't totally fun. There are some that I go where I'm like, I know this is just going to be type one downhill fun. And there are others I know I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so um, most of them are kind of like that level. Um, the trees are so tight in the Catskills um, and just in the Northeast in general. So you have like these trenches that are created, um, especially on the ones that have trails and you, Usually like the vegetation is really thick on the sides. So it's really hard to go off on the sides and get out of the trench, but you're also in a narrow trench. And sometimes that's been like frozen over. So now you have kind of like a loose track and now you have to go down in this and uh, you can't turn when you want to. And the turns in the trenches are like, you know, really tight. And you're literally kind of like this going between trees. I have footage of myself like that this weekend doing that. Uh, sometimes it makes more sense to kind of like in some parts keep my skins on and myself in uphill mode because that'll 
slow me down and, and kind of like maneuver the trench in that way. That's kind of like a tip. But I found that the bushwhack hikes uh, tend to be a little bit more friendly when it comes to skiing. It's a little bit easier to kind of like get out of that trench and find some open terrain. But you're always going to have like these parts where I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. I'm just going to put for this part my skis on my back and I need to like put on my crampons and like walk down a little bit and then go. Hearing Julie describe the difficulties of coming downhill, I found myself asking if she's ever been injured. And her list of injuries is pretty extensive. I'm pleased to say they don't seem to be actually from backcountry skiing as much as being out on the resorts and being a daredevil when she was younger. You probably outdone me in, in, in injuries and, and I would say mine are all because I'm just not, not good enough. Uh, why the hell would you keep, why the hell would you keep doing this? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I guess I also don't like um, things that I'm uh, afraid about holding me back. And I guess I just felt like I could maybe not make poor decisions in the future. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've become, I mean, I've become a very cautious downhill skier. Like it, when I'm unfamiliar with something, I very much take it like slow and I'm, I'm very cautious and I take very calculated risks now. And, and the Catskills, I can go out and explore by myself. In fact, this weekend was the first time that I went out with a friend to do Friday in Balsam Cap. Otherwise, I'm always alone. I did want to ask about that because you mentioned that in your essay. And you sound in this interview so sociable, so friendly. So, you know, you sound very extroverted. You really do like outgoing person. But you write that you are by nature a loner. And that was part of why that whole marital breakup was so damn hard for you. And you are just confirming yeah. that you do all your pretty much all your adventures on your own yeah i'm a i'm a loner and an introvert um like social interaction definitely is something that is like uh kind of like uh, it drains more than recharges and my job is very social right i'm a teacher so i kind of have to be on all the time so then when i have my free time i'm very choosy about who i i spend my free time with because I know that I need to recharge in order to be like top of my game when I'm teaching. And then I also just really love being in the woods by myself. Like even if you try to meditate or whatever, like in your home, like, oh, the heat goes on, right? Or my dog is snoring or, or something like that. There isn't that, that, that total silence. But when you're in the woods, you do feel kind of like, I don't know, some sort of like stillness and silence and presence that is ubiquitous. And like, I think that that's what meditation and contemplative prayer are trying to get us to tap into is that. And I think that's what kind of like that presence of, uh, if you can believe in that, like what a God is, that there is like a presence, there is something in that stillness, that stillness is a presence, that silence is a presence. Um, it's, it is, you're right. It's a presence. I mean, you're, you're aware that you're in silence. It's not emptiness. It's silence. The silence is a thing. It's amazing. Yes. Silence is an existence. It is a thing. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things that come to mind here. Uh, you mentioned about getting up early in the morning to skin up Hunter or, or Wyndham. Is that legal? So there, you know, every mountain has their own rules and I would never uh, promote or do anything that wouldn't be allowed. So I can tell you like the rules at Hunter are that you can skin up up to two hours before the lifts open, right? 
um, and lifts open usually like at nine during the week um, and non-holidays and then um, 8.30 on weekends and holidays. And just within relation to that, is there any reason that anybody can't backcountry ski the Catskill Mountains for, for an example? I'm, no, there's, uh, so long as there's snow on the ground, go and hit the backcountry. So this is what I would recommend if you want to get started. I would use something like FatMap or whatever to kind of like, you know, start looking at terrain, what might be fun to ski. And I cannot stress this enough. You have to hike in the off season. And this brings us back around to where we started with Julie and her membership of the Catskill 3500 Club. Hiking the 35 plus 4 peaks came about almost by accident as a result of the pandemic. And if I sound kind of breathless right now, it's because I am. It's hard work out here on Blackhead. COVID, right, caused like that lockdown. You know, NYC public schools closed and now I'm upstate. And now I'm comfortable navigating my way in the backcountry without assistance. So I just started hiking every day after work. And I was just doing the zones that were like maybe 10 to 15 minutes like away from me. I was obeying COVID rules. And I didn't even care about high peaks. I was just hiking. And then one day, like around May, I was like, well, you know, if I'm doing all the all this hiking, like literally every day, why don't I see if I can do the high peaks, you know, and, and become a member of the 3500 Club. So I started on May 13th officially. And I was like, I'm not going to count any of, you know, the mountains that I climbed um, with my ex-wife. I'm going to start over right now. And uh, within... Less than four weeks, I did 25 of the 35. Uh, I finished my first 35 on double top. And then I picked it up again, um, you know, when I had to do the winter ones. Right. And I so finished off. But I was making a list, right? Like, this might be fun to ski. This might be fun to ski. And then also I was doing lower peaks for those plane crashes project. And and I, I would make a list and then you go and you revisit those places during stick season when the like leaves are off the ground, uh, sorry, the leaves are off the trees and stuff like that. And you have a better idea of what it's going to look like in winter. And then you just go back and revisit those zones if you're actually looking for like fun skiing. There's a, a lot to take on board. It's not like I can just go put my skis on my back and expect to come down without yeah stopping in the hospital on the way i mean there's a lot to take into account right backcountry skiing is a very merit-based sport because you've done all this preparation to kind of like decide what you want to ski um one like finding terrain two and also like developing these skills sometimes people ask me very specific questions about things and i'm willing to do that you know or like ask me for like general advice or guidelines or like is there a good place to start Yes. And I'm, and I'll also give people like resources and, and stuff like that. And I'm probably more likely to give it to like women and people of color than honestly, like, you know, like people like white me. men. <laughs> yeah. Because, like, they, you know, like, like there, there's more intimidation factors. So I'm willing to give them a bigger lift. I think that is wonderful. I'm aware of men bragging. I'm aware of my own privileges, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's great. So if somebody was, um, yeah, I mean, if somebody was listening to this and is in this area and says, hey, I'm, a, I'm, I'm female and or I'm a person of color and, and you know what, I want some of this accessibility because I haven't felt welcomed. Um, are you guys doing, pub is that clinic part of it public or can they reach out to you somewhere and find you? Re reach out to me because I'm, I'm also looking to give kind of like, uh, like 
women only clinics and, and stuff like that. And look, I mean, you're a white male. I'm not going to necessarily just turn you. Hey, like, I'm not like that. I'm just saying that I'm kind of like more inclined to like give like a bigger lift um, to people that I think like have more um, obstacles in their way. Um, I believe, you know, as, as a teacher does in giving people resources, but then you have to use the resources, right? Uh, you know, teaching someone to fish rather than, uh, you know, just giving them a fish. I do want to ask, did this, you know, did this experience of getting out into these mountains, did it ultimately cure the, what you are freely admitting to be the dark hole that you fell into after the sudden breakup of your marriage? It has not cured it because I, I feel like um, I kind of like maybe won't be able to fully be over it until I'm able to kind of like uh, apply the things I've learned like to another relationship. I, I also kind of learned that, you know, no matter what I achieve on my own, it's not going to, compared to the feeling of sharing an experience with someone you love and feel a deep connection with. And, and I, I think that's like one of the highest highs you can have in life is, is that like feeling of connection with someone and sharing in an experience with someone. And every single time, you know, I don't want to admit this cause I, I you know, uh, like I am like so happy and, and with what I've done with things, but every time I achieve something, there is like this tinge of like sadness. Like I know it would be better if I had someone in my life to share this with. Self-aggrandizement and, and uh, you know, boosting my own ego isn't as rewarding as sharing in, in things with someone else. I know you're a big fan of... Um of double IPAs as well and yes. support the local, <laughs> the local breweries and a fair few pictures of you do have, do have yourself enjoying a celebratory beer at the top of the bottom of a mountain. Yeah. Oh, that's a, actually, that's like a, a little thing that's unique to me. Um, you know, like people do like après ski and, or like they, they do something like when they're done, but to me, it actually makes the most sense to do it as I'm about to climb. Um, and I'm like, I have like one beer, like I'm not like getting trashed on the trail or anything like that, or I'll like keep one in my pack. But the, um, the carbohydrates from the beer absorb really quickly. So like, it, it kind of like prevents you from like bonking or feeling like too depleted on the way up. And then also like, I mean, honestly, like the alcohol kind of gives you a little bit of a mood boost, which also helps on, on the uphill. Well, maybe maybe yeah. I'll ch check in with some medical expert on, uh, on 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 how that one pans out. This is this has been this has been enormous enormous fun. Please please do share with me like how people can 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 find you if they want to follow your stories. But I think really what I wanted to get out of it was the sense that we can all find ourselves in a hole. Um, we can dig ourselves out of that hole. And there are these beautiful things that we can do that can get us out of it. And I really wanted to talk about the backcountry skiing as well, because it's certainly in the Catskills such a thing this year. And and now I feel like more inspired than ever while we're having this crazy snowy winter. So we'll see what I yes. can about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this has been a ton of fun. I really love this. You can find Julie McGuire on Instagram on 
Skin Skis, which makes a lot of sense, I guess. And she's Julie McGuire on Facebook. Her daily stories and photos really are pretty great. I mean, it's, it's proper content. It's not just a, a quick post. It's real quality content. And if you are a double IPA aficionado, well, it's a whole, uh, whole beer section going on there as well. I really hope you enjoyed the interview and I hope you gained something from it. If you are someone who's gone through a divorce or is going through a divorce, I think we can all admit that it's difficult and that it doesn't heal as quickly as we think it might but it does heal eventually. And as Julie says, it's really useful and helpful and indeed very important to have an external passion that you can dedicate yourself to, to help you through that difficult and sometimes depressing period. As far as the backcountry skiing goes, there's more to be gained by watching the YouTube video. And as far as the hiking goes, well, I'm now recording this from just about the summit. I made it to the top of Blackhead, but it wasn't easy. I didn't expect it to be. I know that, uh, route from doing the escarpment run it climbs 1100 feet in well under a mile it was crazy steep i switched to micro spikes but i still had to wrestle with the ice and it was only really because i knew the contours of the land and what i was in for that i kept going but i made it to the top and sure enough i met a couple of other hikers who'd come the other way from up there joe and the other guy and uh, they were from park slope brooklyn where i lived for a very happy decade of my life and in fact, one of these two guys was uh, born there. His family's been there for generations. So his mum met his dad on the Fifth Avenue bus. His dad was on the way to get unemployment. And as he often jokes, hey, mum, couldn't you find someone who had a job? And I'm sure mum's pointed out at some point that, hey, if I had done, you wouldn't be here, son. It's still and it's quiet here. It gives me a chance to perhaps just reflect a little on what I've done the last couple of weeks. I had a... Uh, a sort of three-day almost triathlon of activities. I hiked Panther from Fox Hollow to get one of my four winter peaks. I could have gone the easy way from Giant Ledge, but of course I didn't because that's not me. I broke trail for the last two miles on my snowshoes. It was stunning. It was also incredibly hard work trying to follow a trail that didn't exist. It got to the point that the blue blazes were down at eye level. I mean, sorry, were down at foot level. There was so much snow on the ground. I often, because nobody else had been that way in at least a few days, I often could not figure out where the trail was. I had to kind of step one way, see if I could see another blue blaze down at knee level or something. And if I couldn't retreat, trace my steps and try again uh, enormously enjoyable peaceful and stunning and I turned around knew I'd summited once I ran into the trail coming well once I snowshoed into the trail that was coming the other way from giant ledge where there is always much traffic all right so I did that on the Saturday I hiked panther in snowshoes I understood why the snowshoes are so essential Sunday I did a long run with some friends we are all intending to run Rock the Ridge in May. It will probably not take place officially, but um, small, socially distanced groups of us will be running this regardless. It's in the Shawangunks, not the Catskills. It's a 50 miler. I've never done it before. It doesn't have quite the elevation or the inclines, the steepness and what we call the technical grades of the Catskills but it's still 50 miles so we've had to get some long long runs in but they're a wonderful way to spend a Sunday morning you get to talk with people you learn about each other's lives um, the three or four people I go with are all great conversationalists and politically attuned and just you know really interesting people I very much enjoy that and then the next day I think it was Monday the 22nd is when I took my son snowboarding at Gore 
Uh, we had just such a fabulous day. It snowed on us all the time we were on the mountain. We were pretty wet by the end of it, but it was it was just an amazing day. I really like Gore. It doesn't have a ton of uh, really tough double black terrain, uh, but it's got a lot of fast blacks and particularly fast long blues. And it seems like um, the ratio of spending time on a ski run as opposed to a ski chair is much, much higher than it is at some other mountains that I could name. So it was well worth the hour and a half hairy drive uh, back in the snow, including on the throughway at 45 miles an hour until the snow turned to rain and the last hour and a half or so uh, eased up somewhat. Other than that, I have two podcasts I want to recommend. I do really enjoy people who put time into writing a show. I like to do more of that myself. I've only read one short story from my travels, but if you do like short stories from travels, definitely listen to Will Conway's Baggage Claim. Highly recommended. A lot of the episodes are very short. They're sort of anecdotal. There's almost nothing to them. And sometimes there's a lot to them. And that's very much what travel is about. There are the big experiences, even the ones where you think your life's in danger. And then there are just the everyday interactions that occur and will never occur again. The other show I really enjoy, similarly named, is uh, Travel Tales Beyond the Brochure by the uh, the British asexual whose name I can't remember because I'm not sure he gives it out too often. He has been somewhat slow about uh, uploading podcasts of late, but he is now insisting he will do so every other Thursday. And I am so glad to know it's every other Thursday that is not my show, which is every other Thursday. He's done a lot of episodes that seem to have very little to do with travel, but following his recent beer around the world, he did spirits around the world. I gave up spirits a number of years ago. It's not a never. It's a very, very rare. You could probably talk me into a really nice single malt at the right occasion. But I really enjoyed hearing about the history of mezcal and some of the other weird spirits you can find around the world. But it is a great show and I highly recommend you listen to it. He puts a lot of work into this and uh, talks to as many as three or four different people per show to get their perspective on something. He deserves some support. One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated The theme song is by Madness, used with permission And the logo is by Mark Lerner Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active.